Gazette Newspapers presents the Parting Shots Podcast. Now, here's your host, Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor, Ken Schott. Thank you, Scott Giese, and welcome to the Parting Shots Podcast, available wherever you get your podcast. Subscribe today. Thanks for joining me from the Parting Shots Podcast studio in Schenectady, New York. We have another fantastic show for you. We'll have a New York flavor in segments two and three as I'll speak with the Associated Press's Dennis Wazak Jr. about the Jets' hiring of Robert Sala as their new head coach. Then I'll talk to Newsday's Tim Healy about the firing of Mets general manager Jared Porter just over a month after they hired him. First, though, I caught up with former Union College hockey player Jay Verity this week. Verity, whose playing career was cut short in 2000 because of a narrowing of his spinal cord, was named an assistant coach for the Arizona Coyotes last week. We talked about how the injury may have ended one career, but started another. Well, Jay, it's a pleasure to talk to you. It's been a while since we've uh, chatted. I think the last time we chatted, you won a gold medal with the U.S. Uh, in 2010 with the, the USA team and the World Juniors. Yeah, so about every 10 years now we're talking. So <laughs> Yeah, 2000 when you graduated, 2010, now 2000. Well, it's actually 11 years now since 2021, but I think we skipped Okay. <laughs> But uh, close, close. I appreciate you coming on, Jay. I know you're busy uh, with the Coyotes. Uh, first of all, when you got the uh, call to come up to be an assistant coach there with uh, the Arizona Coyotes, uh, you were coaching uh, two years with the, the farm team in Tucson. When you got the call, what, did, what was your first thought? Um, well, it's been kind of an interesting period of time right now. Um, obviously, the Coyotes went into the bubble, and I went into the bubble with the Coyotes at the end of kind of last season, uh, because there's this thing called the taxi squad, where there, there's extra players around that were our American League players in case somebody got hurt. So that was kind of going on, and I was kind of managing those guys a little bit here, um, and it just kind of worked out where um, I was added to the staff to kind of kind of look after those guys a little bit. Yeah, I mean, how thrilling is it to be, you know, you're now in the NHL and, you know, you know to be part of that staff and to be in, in the, uh, you know, from, from where your coaching career started uh, back at Union uh, to now be where you're at. Is it, how, is it a lifelong accomplishment here, the dream that's come true? Um, you know, I think everybody, when they're, they're growing up, they want to be part of the NHL, and I think the dream is always to be a player and, Obviously, you saw me play, so that that wasn't that was more of a dream than anything. So, um, coaching uh, was the ne- next best opportunity, and, and that was something that we I was really working for um, throughout uh, coaching and kind of jobs I was looking at, and um, that was what I really wanted to do. Is I wanted to try and be uh, an NHL coach in some capacity. Now, your coaching career started. With an unfortunate, uh, you know, your playing career ended because of a neck injury, and Kevin Sneddon offered you the chance to be a volunteer assistant coach. Uh, when he offered that to you, what was your first thought, and, you, and what responsibilities did would he give you? Yeah, my first thought is no way I want to have this job. <laughs> <laughs> no way I want to be a coach. And uh, you know, obviously, we uh, got a pretty good education at Union there, and wanted to try and give that a shot. And uh, I did for a while, uh, kind of in the banking industry. But what I really missed was being at the rink when I when I got into it. And, and 
um, I realized that, that hockey and coaching was my passion, and um, that's a little bit of how I got in into coaching after the opportunity. And, and uh, you know, Kevin, Kevin Stead and Kevin Patrick were, were great to me. They brought me on board. They gave me a lot of opportunity uh, to kind of see how a Division One program runs and is operated and uh, gave me a lot of inside knowledge early. Um, and if you kind of look around, coaches usually, you know, have a pro career, play for a period of time, you know, 29, 30, around there, um, start to kind of transition out of playing into coaching. And I was I was 24-year-old coach with a, a year of college hockey experience, which was pretty young and uh, pretty amazing for me looking back. Mm-hmm. And you said you went into banking after uh, you graduated? Yeah, I was working for um, a company that provided real-time financial data. Um, so I was kind of using my economics degree. I was living back home in St. Louis, and, and I was working with the midget team, uh, the, the 16U team at the time. Uh, and realized that going to the rink was what I really, really enjoyed in my day. So you first, really, your first uh, job uh, in the in the, came in the junior ranks, right? At the Everett uh, Silvertips in the Western Hockey League. Uh, I actually had one stop before there okay. at the Pittsburgh Forge in the North American That's League. That's right. Yes. Uh, so I was. If you start writing down all the junior leagues in North America, I. I almost got them all covered. I'm, I'm missing the Quebec League, but um, yeah, I did start in Pittsburgh with um, the North American Hockey League, and, and um, you know, went right into it there. And I was there for a year and a half. I kind of came in in December uh, to help out, and I uh, kind of went on from there. And of course, I just mentioned the efforts. Uh, you go to a major junior. For, I mean, what was the transition like going from? Uh, North American League to a major junior hockey. It was um, it was different. Um, I had never experienced major junior hockey uh, before, and um, our team got sold in Pittsburgh. We won a national championship in the North American League, and the team was sold. And they kind of came in and said, "You guys are, you know, we don't need you anymore." So. Um, Kevin Constantine was the, the general manager of that team and said, hey, I, I got a job out in Everett in the Western Hockey League. It's a brand new team, expansion team. No idea how it's going to go. You want to go? And I was unemployed at the time and said, sure, why not? So packed up the U-Haul in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania and, and headed west to, to Everett, Washington. He's, we're there, uh, first an assistant, then an associate head coach. Then, uh, obviously, working with Team USA in that gold medal, uh, yeah, what was the thrill of that like? I remember talking to you that night after USA won, and you, I mean, you were the video coach there, and you were really excited. I mean, how, you're looking back now, I mean, uh, how thrilling was that? Winning championships, winning gold medals, uh, special times in player and coaches' lives. You, you have really fond memories of those. I have uh, really good memories of that, that coaching staff, uh, the group of players um, through that time period, it was it was really special. And then, you know, every year the the World Juniors comes around, so somebody's on the staff here, somebody's on the staff there, and uh, you know, there's always a little banter uh, with that. So uh, at the time I, in Everett, I was working for Craig Hartsburg, who had three gold medals, so there was no pressure as I was going to the tournament and. Uh, 
On the other side of it, uh, a player who played in Everett, Mitch Love, is the assistant with the Canadian team the last two years. So he's got a he's got a gold and silver. So you know, we always have a, a little joke of who's going to have the most gold medals um, <laughs> living in Everett. And we're tied right now. So. Well, you think about the Union connections with you winning a gold medal, Shane Gossesbear winning a gold medal as a player, and just uh, a couple weeks ago, Nate Lehman and uh, Chris Mayotte, former Union coach and goalie respectively, gold medals. I mean, how proud are you with, with that Union connection? We're, we're seeing uh, this kind of uh, hardware going to uh, the, the American players and coaches. Yeah, you know, Nate and uh, Rick, they've done an amazing job with the program. Obviously, the national championship, and now Nate going in with the World Juniors. And I don't know, Chris has got three or four. I have no I have no idea how many gold medals. Every every other year, it seems like he's on the staff and doing a great job, and obviously climbing the ranks, too. And, and um, you know, Chris is a good friend, and, and uh, there was a big connection with him going to Union. Uh, I knew him before he went to Union, so I was always following his career. Really excited about all the great things that are going on there. You went to France to be a head coach for a couple of years. What was that like going there to coach? Crazy. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was a situation where at the time I would go into interviews and and in the interview they would say, well, you, you did a pretty good job with the interview, but you have no head coaching experience. And so with that... Uh, I realized I was just going to have to take a head coaching job somewhere to gain that experience, to gain that knowledge on my resume. And uh, I just kind of had a connection with a player over there and said, hey, our coach just left. Uh, would you be interested in interviewing? So I interviewed and and, uh, and went over there. And You know, when you go into those situations where maybe like going to the Western League, uh, you know, after coaching in Pittsburgh, you don't really know what to expect. So... You try to prepare as much as you can, and when I got there, I was I was shocked actually at how good the level of hockey was, and how committed the players were to what they were doing. And um, we had really good teams both years. We had uh, a great group of people. Um, but the biggest difference now was I was coaching pros. They were grown men. I was I don't know thirty five, thirty six at the time when I went there, and I had I think I had three players on the team that were all older than me. Well, so that was uh, that was different. You know, they had kids, they had things they had to do. Um, so um, I, I really enjoyed that experience. Well, how old are you now? Forty what? Forty two. So that was <laughs> yeah. They start ticking off. So well, trust me, I'm fifty seven. I know that feeling. <laughs> So, after France, you came back, uh, coached in the USHL, and then went to the Ontario Hockey League, and then the American Hockey League. Give me What, ha- what have you learned along those steps along the way since becoming a head coach? Um, you, you know, the, the, I think you grow with every step along the way. Um, you know, when I went to France, I was the head coach. I didn't have a whole lot to do with the player personnel stuff. And then I went to Sioux City and I was kind of in charge of everything. I was in charge of hiring trainers, hiring equipment guys, hiring assistant coaches, um, you know, hiring scouts, scouting, running a draft. So there was a lot more to that job in Sioux City. And uh, I, I loved every second of it. But there was a time where I was like, I, I kind of got to make a decision. Do I want to 
coach or do I want to manage or what exactly do I want to do? And so I kind of jumped back into the OHL to just be a coach and really focus on coaching and and day-to-day operations of that as opposed to, to everything else. But I think those experiences help me understand uh, situations when you're dealing with players or dealing with uh, management in terms of, you know, hey, what do you think about this move or what do you think about that move or how do you think we should handle this? Um, I think I gained a lot of experience from those situations that way. When you got hired by the Coyotes to run the t- uh, Tucson Roadrunners, wh- what was what was your initial thought about going in and coaching uh, American Hockey League players? Yeah, I knew it was going to be a challenge. Um, I hadn't played in the American Hockey League. I hadn't seen an American Hockey League game in, you know, three or four years. But I knew it was a stepping stone to, you know, you're coaching in major junior, coaching in junior a lot. The next step is pro hockey and, and – um, you know, I think a lot of those experience prepared me for the American Hockey League because there's a lot of moving parts in that league. Uh, obviously, you're the basically the AAA franchise um, for the NHL team, and if something happens to players up top, then there's players that are called up, players that are sent down, high draft picks that are sent to develop. Uh, so it's really a balance of developing hockey players and winning hockey games because winning is also part of developing, learning how to win, knowing how to win. Um, So that was something, for the first time, I had never really thought of it in terms of winning and developing. I was always, hey, we play tonight, let's try to win this hockey game. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, you know, you won 70 games, got the coach in the All-Star game uh, last year. How thrilling was that to coach in the All-Star game? Yeah, it was... um, it's kind of funny. It's a little bit of a blessing and a curse. You joke about it a little bit. Um, the All-Star break, you know, you usually have a vacation planned or some trip planned. So I, we actually had a trip planned with my wife to, to sneak away for a couple days and, and relax before you get ready for the second half of the season. And they kind of name it right around December. And, and the way I coach, I'm kind of oblivious to those things. I had no idea. We were in first place at the time, and I got a call from Steve Sullivan. He's like, congratulations, you're coaching the All-Star game. I was like, oh, yeah? When's that? Like, he's like, well, the All-Star break, you know? I was like, oh, okay, awesome. Um, but obviously it was a huge honor. Uh, great coaching staff we had in Tucson to help us with that, the players. Uh, we had a really, really hot start to that season, and the experience at the All-Star Game was pretty special. Uh, the opportunity to go do those things and, and represent the league and represent the Tucson Roadrunners was, uh, was a ton of fun. Was there any concern when you took over Tucson and now with the uh, parent club of the, the Arizona that the players look at you and say, well, this guy's never played a pro hockey game. He only played college, and you know, what does he know? Yeah, I think I think everybody's aware of that. Everybody understands everybody's playing career, the playing background. Um, but I think everybody brings a little something different to to the staff. And um, you know, for me, uh, I love to work with players. I love to work with players with video. I love to go on the ice after before practice and work with players. And um, in terms of what I try to do is I 
try to establish a relationship with those guys with the understanding that I'm trying to help their game and help them be better on a day-to-day basis. And I think when you can do that, you know, then you have a partnership in your coaching and, and the players and the coaches have a partnership working together. Looking back, uh, you know, the neck injury, do you think in a way it was a blessing in disguise that you they got you on this path to coaching? Yeah, well, everything happens for a reason, I think. Uh, at the time, you, you don't really realize how it's going to go or what twist it's going to take or what turn there's going to be. But, um, you know, it, it happened. And uh, here, I, here I am on this coaching path, and um, I'm happy I'm on this path. So yeah. I don't look back and I don't say what if and what if this or what if that. But it was definitely an event that, that um, probably changed the path that I was taking. I want to finally wrap this up. Um... I want to go back to a game December 4th, uh, 1998 at uh, Lina Rink against Cornell. I think you started some trouble there late in the third period, and it could end up being a, a mini brawl, and then we saw Leo Strom and Ian Burt, the goaltenders, going at it. Remember that game? <laughs> I do. I, I talked to Leo Strom everyone, quite a bit, actually, still. He's, uh, he's around pretty close, so we, I have lots of conversation with Leo. He brings it up every once in a while, so... <laughs> What, yeah. do you, what do you remember about that game? I know that your union had lost the game. There was, you know, it was five two, and I think frustration that that settled in, and uh, you were poking at Ian Burton. That sort of set things off. Yeah, I don't know exactly what happened, but I'm pretty sure Brant Westerman was involved. He usually was back then, so <laughs> I think he got involved in the situation a little bit. So, uh, yeah, that, that was a long time ago, but uh, kind of makes a makes everybody chuckle a little yeah. bit. What I remember most about it, I was, you know, I was, I was in the press box, obviously, and I turned to um, Tom Fleischer, who covered the Cornell for the Ithaca uh, Journal back in the day, and I you saw you know, Leor leave the net a little bit, and Ian, and I just turned around and said, wouldn't it be funny if the goalie started fighting, and all of a sudden the crowd starts going nuts, and I turned around and I was like, oh my God, they are fighting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, leave it to Leor. <laughs> I, know, I know Sneds wasn't too happy with you guys after that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's frowned upon, obviously, in the in the college game a little bit. Um, but that stuff happens every once in a while. Well, Leo ended up getting 30 penalty minutes out of the game and tied a record at the time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. Oh, that was fun times. That was great times. Well, Jay, appreciate a few minutes. Uh, you know, good luck with everything going on with Arizona, and uh, we'll talk soon, okay? Okay, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Coming up... I'll speak with Dennis Wozak Jr. about the New York Jets hiring new coach Robert Sala. You're listening to the Parting Shots Podcast. Sign up for the weekly Daily Gazette sports newsletter. The newsletter features updates on the local sports scene from our staff writers, debate on topics local and national, and reveals the latest guests for the Parting Shots Podcast. The newsletter is free. To sign up, head to dailygazette.com. Hey, this is Jake LaHutt, political reporter for Business Insider, and I'm a former Daily Gazette staff writer. You're listening to the Parting Shots Podcast with Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor, Ken Schott. Welcome back to the podcast. The New York Jets have a new coach. They hired San Francisco 49ers defensive coordinator Robert Sala, a hire that has drawn league-wide praise. 
To talk about the hire, we welcome back Dennis uh, Wazak Jr., who covers the Jets for the Associated Press. Uh, Dennis, thanks for coming back on the show for the second time in three weeks. I appreciate it. There's been a lot of uh, news, so uh, a lot of speculation and now actual news. So uh, I appreciate you having me, Ken. Well, I appreciate it because I know we talked a couple weeks ago, say, so, uh, have you back on once they got a new coach. And, yeah, we're here talking <laughs> on Wednesday, and he'll be officially introduced Thursday on Tuesday. The team acknowledged that they had hired uh, Sala. So, as I said, you know, it seems this hire has really drawn a lot of praise around the league. Uh, did the Jets score a touchdown with this hiring? Yeah, I mean, on the surface, yes, no doubt about it, because I, I think he was the hot name. Um, you, you've heard a lot about Arthur Smith, the offensive coordinator, former offensive coordinator of Tennessee, who's now in Atlanta. Those two guys were really um, in this process over the last two weeks, the hot names. Now, Eric Bieniemy is also uh, you know, one of those names that keeps getting talked about and mentioned um, in coaching hiring you know, situations. But uh, with the Chiefs' success, there's been a little bit of, uh, you know, a wait and see with Bienemy, uh, and you know we'll see what happens with if he gets hired. And Houston still has an opening, Philadelphia as well. But Robert Sala was the guy. Um, I think once the Jets went through their nine virtual interviews, they knew that that guy was who they wanted to have in. I think they they really liked Arthur Smith as well, and he was. I wouldn't say the backup, but he was he was a finalist in their minds as well. But I think he Salah really knocked their socks off. He he was the guy when they brought him in for the uh, and he was the first one that they brought in for an in person interview at their facility in Florham Park, New Jersey. That that really kind of cemented things. I know Jets fans were a little upset because the Jets let Salah leave. Uh, the facility so it was like oh wait they had the guy and they let him go but I think uh, they really knew that that's how they wanted to go and then they brought Arthur Smith in had an in-person interview with him uh, just to kind of see how things went there Sala went to Philly or met with the uh, the brass and you know with the uh, Eagles and he said in his statement that the Jets released that as the interview process went on, he knew that the Jets, that's where home was going to be. So uh, it'll be interesting to hear from him when we speak to him at his introductory press conference, how kind of, you know, all the, the, the how it all went with him and, and the interview process um, and when exactly he knew um, if he just wanted to honor the commitment to make the, the next interview or he just wanted to see what else. But I think the Jets... Um, have their guy, uh, and, and Ken, you know, it's a lot different from two years ago when the Jets hired Adam Gase, where some some people were not happy, and I would say a lot of Jets fans were not happy about the hire, especially after coming off of the struggles he had in Miami and all of the things that people had said, you know, about his relationships with players and and just how things went down with the offense and Ryan Tannehill struggled under him and. Um, I think it's a breath of fresh air. You know, they, they see this guy, Robert Sala, who's an emotional type guy on the sideline. He's even keeled uh, in press conferences. Uh, it, it's just, it's something, it's a positive thing. And with the fans liking the hire, it, there's just optimism now. There's not, well, maybe, they, well, they missed out on that guy. No, they got the guy that the fans wanted, that they wanted, and it sounds like Robert Sala wanted them all the way as well.
What makes Salah, I mean, in your thoughts, just watching him as a defensive coordinator as a 49er, I mean, they got to the Super Bowl last year. Uh, what, what is it about him that you think they liked? Well, I, I think when you look at the on-field uh, stuff first, number, they finished number two last year on their way to the Super Bowl. So that's, that's a big thing. But then they finished in the top five this year. Despite losing, uh, you know, Nick Bosa and Solomon Thomas and Richard Sherman for a while, uh, and some other guys on that defense, key key parts of that defense uh, were not there for big chunks of this season, and they and Salah was still able to manage a top five defense, and that says a lot about him being able to uh, just kind of take what he has and work with it, and and I think so. That's a big part right there. So. Uh, the other thing is, I, I, you can't discount the, uh, the the fact that he is universally, it seems, respected by his his players, by his coaches, his fellow coaches, and, and just people around the league. There, there's something to be said about that, where a guy has respect as soon as he walks into the facility. Uh, there, there's there's a level of respect that, hey, you know, this guy. He could have gone into any team. This guy could have stayed in San Francisco. He he was wanted. He was a guy that that people really look at as a bright star in the assistant coaching ranks. And the Jets got him. So um, the, a big part of what Christopher Johnson, the team CEO and team president Jaime Eli and GM Joe Douglas talked about was culture and um, partnership and those kind of words. There were were key words that they used, and I think he checked all those boxes for the Jets. And Salah will work with Joe Douglas in unison, putting together a roster. And uh, I liked what he said, uh, Salah, in his statement when the Jets announced it on uh, Tuesday. He said there will be no shortcuts. There's no shortcuts to success. And that's the kind of thing you want to hear where they're not going to try to, you know, cut and paste things. They're going to build, you know, and and that's what this Jets franchise needs because they have 10 years of losing, basically, you know, not losing records, but 10 years of not making the playoffs. And that is the longest active streak in the NFL. And that's something you don't want, you know, as an NFL team. So I think all of that. But the optimism and and his ability to work with what he has and um, and and to to uh, to over to look over the entire team and that will be a key piece of what we hear over the next few days whether um, he will bring in a defensive coordinator whether he'll call the defensive plays or he'll really kind of take a little bit of a step back and oversee the entire team and that's something that. Um, Jets fans, uh, the Jets uh, organization, they kind of wanted a, like a CEO type coach who oversees the entire team uh, because that'll be a switch from what we had here uh, with Adam Gase and Greg Williams running the defense. I know, you know, probably tough question, question to answer, but where does this leave uh, uh, Darnold, Scott Darnold, um, um, as far as the quarterback situation is concerned? Well, with, with Darnold, it's it's an interesting thing, and I think I mentioned this last uh, last time we spoke. It's an intriguing situation because first you have a guy Sam Darnold who's Sam, the, Sam, yeah, who's the number. I apologize. I got I got that first name wrong. <laughs> I said Scott, so I apologize. It was Sam. Was, yeah, messing up there. So. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he with Sam Darnold, he's the guy who was a number three pick just. 
you know, in 2018, and he was considered the, the future of the franchise. Uh, he's only, you know, he's 23 years old. You look at a, a guy who's got a ton of talent, and you just wonder, it, it, does he just need a change of scenery? Does he need uh, another coach? I mean, this will be another, this would be another offensive coordinator, another, you know, potential system. Here's the only thing that it will work in Sam Darnold's favor, uh, potentially. Um, one of the coaches that Sala is bringing is Mike LaFleur, who is the passing game coordinator with the 49ers. He's the, the brother of uh, Matt LaFleur, the Packers uh, coach. And he, ran, he is familiar with a, a Shanahan-type offense. And that's the type that, of offense that Sam Darnold uh, is really – pretty good in when there's a lot of movement when that when he makes plays it, you see it that he can make those kind of plays in that type of system so um and, and the word is that they think there's potential that that's there that's just waiting to come out now the wild card in that whole thing is what we've been hearing about Deshaun watson in houston that he wants out so now that comes into the mix do they want uh, to, to kind of go for it all and bring in a guy who's, you know, a top three, four, five quarterback in the entire league already. And then you don't have to worry about your quarterback over the next few years. But there are some hurdles with that as well. And then you throw in the number two overall pick. You know, do they like a Justin Fields? Do they like a Zach Wilson from BYU? There's so much work to be done and so much will happen between now and, you know, March and April when the draft is. So, uh, there, Here's the long story short, Ken. It doesn't hurt Sam Darnold where if another coach might have come in, it's like, well, Darnold would never thrive in that type of offense, so he's clearly gone. I think there's potential for him to still be this team's quarterback uh, in the 2021 season. As far as, uh, you know, obviously a defensive-minded coach, uh, how does this affect the defense? I mean, does, does this defense automatically get better with him in charge? Well, I think one of the things is that some people have talked about how he, he runs a 4-3 type defense and the Jets have been doing um, like a 3-4 or 4-3 mix. And, and you know what? Uh, when you talk about that kind of stuff, it, it it doesn't really matter these days because so many defensive coordinators mix things up now. You know, they, there's a base, but the base is, is just – you know, something that they like to run um, as a base. And they mix things up constantly. And I think with Robert Sala, one of the big things, like I mentioned earlier, was that he was able to take what he had and make it successful. So I think um, there will be pieces that will remain. Uh, It'll be interesting to see what he does at the linebacker spot because that's one of the, the weaknesses area of weaknesses for the Jets right now um, in terms of just not knowing who's there. C.J. Mosley opted out uh, because of the pandemic, uh, but he should be back. But, you know, what what kind of shape will he be in when he comes back? Uh, the other the guy who replaced him, Neville Hewitt, uh, is a free agent, and he played well this year. And, you know, did the Jets resign him? So there are a lot of question marks. And then you look at the back end where they have a young secondary uh, their their veteran guy, safety Marcus May, is a free agent. Joe Douglas has already said he'll be a priority in the in the offseason, but maybe Salah brings a veteran cornerback like a Richard Sherman 
to this team, you know, just to kind of solidify that back end and have that veteran voice back there. So I, I think you might see some 49ers players move here, but I think after what you've seen with the defense over the last year, how bad it, it was, um, they had some stretches where they weren't, you know, bad at the end, but I think Salah's system and Salah just knowing how to use all different pieces will really help this Jets defense. You wrote a story, Dennis, uh, earlier this week about uh, how this hire really was embraced by the Muslim community. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, it's a great accomplishment for uh, you know for Salah to. I mean, just as as a coach in general, he really worked his way through the ranks of coaching as an assistant, the college level, um, and at the uh, NFL level, uh, coaching, you know, different areas on the field and, and a few different teams. And and he is a practicing Muslim, which is something you don't see a lot in the NFL, it, definitely not coaches. Um, he's the first. He's believed to be the first Muslim head coach in the NFL. And uh, there have been uh, just two other um, Arab American head coaches in the NFL. So it's really, and I spoke to Odea Bushi, who was a Jet, and he's currently with the Lions, will be a free agent this offseason. Uh, he's a, a Muslim, and he said, you know, Robert Sala is a trailblazer, you know, because there are young kids who would love to be a coach or a player as well, you know, and, and they see someone who's like them and, um, you know, there, there's a chance, you know, and, and what we see, Ken, right now is, is all kinds of barriers being broken down, you know, as far as, as um, uh, women involved more. Uh, that's what they, you know, different leagues want that to see that more and, and to see um, you know, black coaches, black front office, uh, uh, you know, high ranking officials. And, and you want to keep seeing that more and more. So this is another one of those uh, walls that that have have been knocked down, and and I don't think that it'll be a uh, um, an ongoing theme. But I, I think you know when you see him, you look at him as a coach. But I think knowing that he he is Muslim and he is an Arab American, that that uh, there, there will be a, like a, an increased uh, a fan base, and I've gotten those messages already from people who are uh, on Twitter and, and on Facebook saying, Hey, you know, I, I'm going to, I'm going to watch the jets now, you know, and, and hope for success. So that's, that's a cool angle to see, you know, it won't be, I don't think after this, this initial, um, you know, interest, I don't think it'll be a, a constant theme, but for the Muslim community, this is a bright spot and it's, it's nice to see. And it's uh, it's good to see that, you know, the jets, I, I don't know that they get enough credit, um, for what they've done in terms of hiring over the last, you know, several years. I mean, they, they've had three black coaches, uh, they've had two black coaches and a Muslim head coach over the last, you know, 15 years. And, and that's, that's a credit to them. That shows that they've, uh, you know, that they, they are trying to be, to, you know, have diversity um, in different areas. They've had a black woman in a high ranking um, uh, position in the, the, uh, front office. So, uh, that's, that's good to see. And I, I think the Johnsons are, um, you know, deserve to be, you know, get credit for that as well, that, you know, it doesn't matter what, what the color or the religion or the ethnicity is that they're, they're trying to bring in somebody, you know, somebody who is, is the fit, you know, the right fit for them. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, it's, it's really nice to see. 
How important was it for uh, Joe Douglas to get this right? Obviously, uh, he did not hire Adam Gase. He was uh, came on after Gase was hired uh, by the Jets. So for him, for his first coaching hire, how important is it for him to get this uh, right? Yeah, I mean, it, this is it's. I mean, when you think about it, Joe Douglas and Robert Sala will now be linked. You know, this, this is moving forward. This is this is his hire, Joe Douglas. Basically, you know, this is. I mean, it was a team effort, but I think one of the words I mentioned earlier was partnership. That's that's what Joe Douglas talked about. Christopher Johnson talked about partnership. So these guys will work in tandem, and they he knows Joe Douglas knows that he needs to get this right because, as I mentioned earlier, this is ten years they haven't been in the playoffs, and obviously that hasn't been under Joe Douglas's watch. He's only you know two years in, and that kind of thing, but. They, this is this is the moment. This is the time that the Jets want to move forward and and start winning, because with each year it gets longer and longer. This drought. So and and it's just you know think about being a Jets fan and you're you went to the Super Bowl a couple of generations ago now you know and, and Joe Namath and you keep going back to that name and and you know that that's a great moment but there haven't been a lot of highlights for this franchise since you know it have been you know kind of moments here and there but they want sustained success and one of the things Joe Douglas his strength was seeing the process with Baltimore and seeing it in Philadelphia. He knows he needs to build and build. So he needed to get the coach right, and now they need to get the quarterback right, and that's the next step that will play out over the next few months. Didn't the butt fumble rank up there at the Super Bowl? (laughs) (laughs) You know, at this point, uh, people probably talk about that more than than even the Super Bowl at this point. You know, it's because, I mean, if you don't win – People talk about how you're a loser, you know, and and that's one of the signature moments of the losing Jets for sure. Well, you also you know take into account that Las Vegas uh, Raiders game where they came with the blitz and <laughs> blew the game there too. So, uh, yeah, yeah. That, I mean that that was that was one of those things. I, I mean, it, it's amazing that they were able to get a couple of wins after that because yeah. I I thought for sure I, I had a whole lead. Ready to go, you know. The Jets, you know, finally win a game, and, and it just just one play, and it went went <laughs> goodbye. It disappeared. Yeah, yeah that was. Don't yeah, you that, that'll that'll, that'll be talked about a lot. Yeah, don't you just hate that you have your old story written, and then all of a sudden something happens, you got to rewrite on the fly. It's like yeah, oh, yeah. And I don't know that a lot of fans even realize that you know that that's one of those things where you know the whole process where. A lot of times you're writing and trying to just waiting to see. Okay, oh, up now they're going to win or they're going to lose. And then you have two leads and then something changes. It's, it's pretty hectic at the, at the end of a a close game like that. And uh, when one of those kind of plays, here's the thing that I tell people, um, young journalists, when you watch a game and a moment like that, that becomes the story, no matter what, like all the rest of the stuff that happened earlier, that secondary, that, that piece right there, is what everybody will be talking about. So, yeah, <laughs> people will continue to talk about that moment for a few years unless they start winning under Robert Sala, and that's the hope. Yes. Well, Dennis, where can people find you again on social media? I'm at uh, DWAZ, D-W-A-Z 73, on Twitter, 
Um, and uh, you, you could uh, check out AP NFL. It's AP underscore NFL on Twitter, and uh, you could find all of the uh, the Jets news and the rest of the uh, the league news from AP writers, my AP colleagues. So those are probably the best uh, places to go. Yeah, I know you have a Facebook page as well where people uh, yes. like that. Yes, too, I do. So. Uh, Dennis, again, appreciate it, and uh, let's talk down the road once we get towards uh, training camp. Hopefully we'll have real training camps instead of virtual training camps this summer. Yeah, no doubt about it. It would be nice to see fans to be able to go out and see the new coach and the new team, and who knows how many new players there will be, too. That, that, that would be a nice switch because this was, this was tough this year this for in many ways. And I'm just thinking about it too. We'll probably maybe catch you before the draft to see where the Jets are uh, eyeing their number, the number two overall pick. So it's obviously not going to get Trevor Lawrence. <laughs> right, right. So yeah, definitely, it'll be uh, be good to talk to you that because maybe there'll be some clarity on Sam Darnold's situation or if Sean Watson ends up here. So yeah, definitely, there'll be there will be plenty to talk about this entire offseason for sure. Again, all right, Dennis, appreciate it, and uh, we'll talk soon. Sounds good. Thanks so much for having me. All right, thanks. That's Dennis Wozak, Jr. of the Associated Press. While the Jets seem to have their house in order, the New York Mets do not. I'll talk to our friend Tim Healy of Newsday to discuss the firing of General Manager Jared Porter. So I'm just with Jared Porter after just a month on the job. You're listening to the Parting Shots Podcast. I'm Dr. Howard Zucker, New York State's Health Commissioner. It's flu season, and it's always a good idea to get the flu shot. But this year, it's more important than ever. A flu shot won't prevent COVID-19, but it will lower your chances of getting seriously sick from the flu. If you do get sick, the shot can lessen your symptoms and help you feel better sooner. The last thing you or the healthcare system needs during this pandemic is a bad flu season. So please, protect yourself and your community. Get a flu shot now. Hi, this is Union Men's Hockey Coach Rick Bennett. You're listening to the Parting Shots Podcast with Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor Ken Schott. Welcome back to the podcast. It seemed like the New York Mets were on a good roll. They have a new owner, and recently they made a blockbuster trade. But late Monday night, it was learned that Jared Porter, who was named the Mets general manager last month, had sent lewd text to a female reporter while a member of the Chicago Cubs organization in 2016. That cost Porter his job on Tuesday morning. Now to talk about that is our good friend and from Newsday, Tim Healy. Tim, uh, welcome back to the podcast. Happy New Year, and what a way to start the year, huh? Happy New Year, and, and what a way to start the year is right. Uh, just a bizarre disaster of a scene for the Mets. Uh, and, you know, they, they got through it. Uh, they got through the first news cycle anyway. We'll see how it affects them baseball-wise. Wait, what, what happened? Who, who dropped the ball in this situation? I mean, is it Sandy Alderson? Did, did Steve Cohen drop? What, what exactly went down? How this managed to slip by everybody? It, it, it's a good question because it's it's not necessarily that anybody in particular dropped the ball. Um, you know, in, in the case of Jared Porter and this this female reporter 2016 obviously you know disgusting creepy borderline psychotic behavior from Jared Porter to send 62 text messages in a row which is just obsessive and insane um but you know Sandy had some interesting comments yesterday in his explanatory news conference about 
Dan found out about this, and Sandy was pretty convinced that there wasn't really anything the Mets could do to find this out. Um, the Cubs, who were Porter's employer at the time, say they don't know. The Diamondbacks, who hired him a couple of months later as assistant GM, said they didn't know. So uh, I am highly skeptical that none of Porter's colleagues, none of Porter's friends in the industry were aware that he behaved this way. You know, if, if he acted this way toward one woman, how else does he conduct himself as a professional, as a man? Uh, you know what I mean? And, and naturally raises those types of questions. Um, so, it, you know, I, short of uh, Jared Porter saying, oh, by the way, yeah, I was uh, really off the rails this one time in 2016, um, and there are screenshots out there. You know, short of him telling the Mets that in the interview process, I'm not sure how they could have found out. That said, it is, to me, an, an indictment of baseball and the culture in baseball, in front offices and probably clubhouses, uh, that you have a guy behaving this way in the world, and he rose to the ranks, became a general manager, and nobody says anything bad about him. So that, you know, it, it is both not really the Mets' fault, in my opinion, not Andy's fault, nobody's fault except Jared Porter, um, but also says a lot about baseball and the, and the uh, you know, and the ways in which it can improve. Yeah, reading the story, uh, I think I believe it was you who wrote that. You know, Porter had called Alderson about five thirty Monday afternoon, saying this story is coming out, and then I, it seemed like Alderson didn't understand the uh, seriousness of it until about eleven o'clock when it was reported on ESPN. That thing that seemed like at that point, that's what got everything rolling, and how uh, they managed to uh, fire uh, Porter on Tuesday morning. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, when when Porter realized that ESPN was coming out with the story, he tried to get ahead of it with his bosses, called Sandy and let him know what was happening. And Sandy went out of his way to say that Porter wasn't hiding anything when they discussed it. But Sandy also mentioned that it's you know he didn't really fully understand until he read the story from Unikinds and Jeff Passan from from ESPN. Uh, you know, just great story, terrific reporting. And it, of course, included partial transcripts and example texts that he would send. So uh, <laughs> I can kind of see where Sandy's coming from on that. And I don't want to, you know, be a you know ardent Sandy defender by any means. But uh, to hear Porter tell is one thing, but then to read the text, see the screenshots, and think, and just wrap your mind around how somebody thinks it is okay or at all acceptable to behave in that way is just. Uh, you know, just beyond next-level uh, inappropriate conduct. Uh, pretty wild stuff. And then, and then the Mets made the only decision they could possibly make, which was to fire him. And credit to the Mets for doing that pretty quickly uh, with Steve Cohen and tweeting the announcement before 8 a.m. Tuesday. So uh, a late night and an early morning for Mets brass. Yeah. Uh, how do you think this affects the Mets uh, as we get set for the season? It affects the Mets in that Sandy Alderson has a lot more work to do than he was originally planning on. When he first agreed to join Steve Cohen's Mets as team president, he was basically in the Jeff Wilpon role. Jeff Jeff Wilpon had a different title, but it's the same overseer of business operations, of baseball operations. Sandy is the boss. 
Steve Cohen is involved day to day. Sandy will tell Cohen what's going on. Sandy's plan was to hire not only a president of baseball operations to handle baseball stuff, but to hire a general manager to be that president of baseball ops number two guy. Now he has neither of those things. So Sandy's going to have to be much more involved in the day-to-day baseball stuff than he signed up to be. So uh, for, for Sandy Olson, who has been pretty open about how he's up there in age, you know, he's what, 72, 73 years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said he doesn't want to die with his work boots on. He's not in this forever. Um, all of a sudden, his job is much more difficult. As far as he's not going to hire general managers, is that correct? Correct, yes. The Mets do not intend to replace Jared Porter as GM in the short term. It sounds like they'll just stick with this arrangement uh, through the season, essentially, and then maybe next offseason revisit it and see what they want to do as far as baseball leadership, whether that is promoting assistant GM Zach Scott, who was a finalist for the job before they hired Porter, or whether that's opening it up and, you know, going after some of the big names like they did in November when the Mets were initially looking for a president of baseball ops and kind of aborted that search. So the Mets will have plenty of options next offseason as far as how they want to fill those holes, but for now it seems that they're not going to fill them. This is the second year in a row that the Mets have had to fire somebody that they hired to uh, help run the club. I mean, last year was Carlos Beltran. That was the Astros cheating scandal. So, you, I mean, just, just bad luck for the Mets? Bad luck for the Mets. And Sandy Alderson indicated that they might have to, you know, reconsider the depth of their vetting process. Um, you know, he didn't say outright that they would start to do more during that part of the process. Um, but it wouldn't surprise me if they do something to the effect of, you know, hire a private investigator type person and really take a much deeper, thorough look into this person. Um, you know, they, they run a background check, you know, like any employer would. Um, but what's that going to tell you? You know, his credit report, whether he has any criminal charges, right? Traffic tickets here and there. Um, a, a background report is not going to turn anything up unless that anything is very obvious, right? And it, it's pretty much a technicality when you're looking for any job. Um, but with things like manager, general manager for a baseball team, these extremely high-profile roles, um, it's probably worth it for teams to take that extra step and look for skeletons in their closet because, you know, I, Sandy said it yesterday, it, it could happen with any employee, and I don't, by that, because if you conduct yourself like a normal human being and a good person, then you won't have these sorts of problems. So I, I don't buy into the idea at all that this could happen to anybody, because that's objectively false. But the truth there is that you don't really know a person. You can know Jared Porter's reputation, and you can ask around about him, who he's competed against, ask who he's worked for, um, you know, ask people who know him about him. Um, but you don't really know somebody until they reveal themselves to be who they are. Do you think this uh, incident affected uh, the chance of signing George um, George Springer? I don't think so, no. You know, it's, no, nobody's coming to the Mets because Jared Porter's DM. Um, this isn't this, you know, 
scandal, if you want to call it that, is not going to have, I, I can't imagine having some sort of long-lasting, tarnishing effect on Steve Cohen's Mets. What matters most is, one, money, and we know Steve Cohen has plenty of that, and players are excited about that, and two, winning. And the Mets, it seems on paper at this point that they should be a pretty decent team in 2021 uh, and beyond probably. Um, so I, I don't think that that had any effect on, on Springer's decision. Uh, at least I would hope not. I would think Springer, as a smart person who has an agent and people looking out for him, takes a wider view when he's making that sort of big life decision. You have recently had an article on the, the new owner, Steve Cohen. What did you learn about him? I learned that he likes to hang out with his high school and college friends still. Uh, you know, Tuesday came out with that profile. It took me a couple of months to work on. Uh, 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 it was, ended up being more than 3,000 words, the longest story I've ever written, talked to a bunch of people who know him. And it, it was funny to hear about how, you know, we have this image of Steve Cohen in our minds, this $14 billion hedge fund titan who has a pretty sketchy history with the insider trading and so on. Um, and, and that's in the story, absolutely. That is a part of Steve Cohen's life story. Um, but then another part of it is this guy who grew up on Long Island. And I was able to get in touch with a bunch of his friends um, who still get together with him once or twice a year during normal times, obviously. Uh, pandemic is a different story. Um, but they go to their favorite restaurant and they reminisce about old, olden times. And uh, Steve Cohen not only went to his 40th high school reunion, at which point he was extremely wealthy and established on Wall Street, but he closed the place down. He was one of the last to leave. So uh, it was sort of funny to hear about uh, Steve Cohen, the kid, and Steve Cohen, the adult, and how there are common threads there. Of course, I mentioned also at the open here the, the big trade uh, with uh, getting Francisco Lindor from the Indians. How much is that going to uh, help uh, improve the Mets? It's going to improve the Mets, Mets uh, immensely. Shortstop wasn't necessarily an obvious weakness, but it wasn't exactly a strength either with Amin Rosario and Andre Jimenez sort of competing for the job, I guess you could say. Um, but with Francisco Lindor, hands down one of the best shortstops, one of the best players in baseball, um, just a terrific addition. It's going to be a huge upgrade defensively, huge upgrade defensively. Um, and, and then, you know, I don't, I've never met Lindor. I don't know him as a person, but I know how he is reputed to be. And he is a happy guy, good leader, um, or, 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 so, or so people say. You know, uh, I'm sure we'll, we'll learn more firsthand about Lindor, the person, uh, you know, once spring training and the season get going. But a terrific addition for the Mets who, uh, let's be honest, need to sign him to a long-term extension. And if they can do that, and if, if they can sign to a long-term extension and he continues the sort of career progression that he has had through the first six or seven years, then you're looking at a guy who is who could very possibly go into the Hall of Fame wearing a Mets hat. That's the caliber of player and the caliber of trade the Mets pulled off. Uh, what about adding the pitcher Carlos Carrasco in that deal, too? Yeah, he's the obvious number two player in the deal, but, uh, you know, don't sleep on him and what he could mean to this team. Uh, he, 
numbers-wise, track record-wise, he is the Mets' second-best starter behind Jacob DeGrom. You know, he, he has a better track record than Marcus Stroman. And, you know, Carrasco's a little older, so we'll see how 2021 goes for them and who really turns out to be the number two pitcher. Um, but he is not very expensive, $12 million salary in 2021. And uh, very good. He, he's got the, you know, inspiring story of, being diagnosed with and beating cancer in 2019. So there's a lot to like there as far as Carlos Carrasco, the human, and uh, sort of what's gone on in his life. Um, and then just from a pure baseball standpoint, the Mets needed that sort of pitcher, and, and they got him. Well, Tim, appreciate a few minutes talking about this Mets situation. And, of course, yeah, what, we're a month away from spring training. Yeah, yeah, less than a month, you know, February 17th, their Mets pitchers and catchers are scheduled to report, and, and I say scheduled because who knows, you know, how the pandemic will, will affect things, but right now all indications are it's full steam ahead, and uh, really looking forward to it. Well, let's hope we have a full spring training and a 162-game Major League season, and uh yeah, we'll, we'll catch up again as we get towards uh, spring training, and we'll talk about, the, uh, obviously, what the Mets are going to look like. Sounds good. Should, should be a fun camp and a fun season. All right, that's uh, Tim Ely. Thanks for coming on once again, Tim. Thank you. All right, Tim Ely of Newsday. We'll back to wrap up the podcast in just a moment. Hey, football fans, the Daily Gazette You Pick'em Football Contest is back. Predict the winners of the weekly games via your You Pick'em online account. The fan with the most correct points each week gets their name in Thursday's Daily Gazette and wins a $100 ShopRite grocery gift card. The fan with the most overall points after 23 weeks wins a $1,000 travel voucher and could win a trip to Hawaii. To play, go to dailygazette.com football and create your account or use your past account. Select the teams you think will win. You may enter your picks and score predictions five minutes before the start of each game. For official rules, go to dailygazette.com football. For questions concerning the local contest, contact Randy Lewis at rlewis at dailygazette.net. The trip to Hawaii is part of a national contest. The You Pick'em Football Contest is run by the Daily Gazette Advertising Department and not associated with the Daily Gazette Sports Department. Hi, this is Harborside Hal Wafer. I'm the manager of the River Sportsbook at Rivers Casino and Resort. Now, it's always a winning bet to listen to the Parting Shots podcast with Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor Ken Schott. Back to wrap up the podcast, check out my Parting Shots blog for my NFL Playoffs Championship game picks. Go to dailygazette.com slash category slash sports slash parting dash shots. I was 4-0 with my divisional round picks. I'm 7-3 in the postseason. Keep checking out dailygazette.com and the print edition for the latest updates in news and sports on the coronavirus pandemic. I want to thank all the doctors, nurses, and first responders who are dealing with this pandemic. We appreciate the job you're doing in this difficult time. The second wave of the coronavirus is hitting us, so please be vigilant. Even though the vaccine for the coronavirus is coming out, keep wearing the face mask while you're out. Be positive. Stay negative. 
That wraps up another edition of the Parting Shots podcast. I'd like to thank Jay Varaday, Dennis Wazak Jr., and Tim Healy for coming on the show. I will have a special edition of the Parting Shots podcast on Sunday as we look back at the legacy of President Donald Trump and what lies ahead for the new president, Joe Biden. I'll speak with former Daily Gazette reporters Brett Samuels, who covers the White House for The Hill, and Jake LaHutt, political writer for Business Insider. If you have questions or comments about the podcast, email them to me at shot, that's S-C-H-O-T-T, at dailygazette.com. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Slapshots. The views expressed on the Party Shots podcast are not necessarily those of Gazette newspapers. The Party Shots podcast is a production of Gazette newspapers. I'm Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor Ken Schott. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next time. From the Party Shots podcast studio in Schenectady, New York, good day, good sports, be smart, stay safe, wear the face mask.